text. Sermon text this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, as we continue in our Genesis series. Again, that's Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Genesis 9, 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Last week, Barton preached the entire Noah narrative. And so this morning, what I want us to do is zoom in on the, the very end of, of the Noah narrative as we look at the covenant that the Lord made with Noah. We have two more weeks remaining in our series through Genesis 1 through 11, and in a, in a season, in a year that, you know, has probably felt or, you know, realistically been uncertain for you, I hope that you have been anchored, I hope that you've been encouraged by looking at some of the more foundational, fundamental truths in all the Bible, and in, in all the world, really. Um, even though this, you know, really since August, um, uh, the end of August, beginning of September, uh, we've been considering the way things were in the beginning. I hope that through this study, you've been able to see why things are the way they are in the present, too. 
So Genesis 1 through 11, the, the whole section, can, can really be summarized by a repetition of three movements. You have creation, God's act, then you have sin, and then you have God's response. So you have creation, sin, God's response. And we see it repeating itself, these, this rhythm. We see it repeating itself throughout Genesis 1 through 11. You, you have creation. God designed a good world for good purposes. And then you have sin. Mankind rebelled against God's good design and purpose. And then you have God's response, which is twofold. You have judgment and you have grace. God responds to sin with righteous judgment, and he responds to sin with extravagant grace. And these three repetitive movements in Genesis 1 through 11 are still present today. I mean, what's the answer to the question, why is the world the way it is? Well, the world is the way it is because sin has warped God's created design for the world. And how would we answer the question, why are we the way that we are? Well, because although God created us to live in harmony with himself and with one another and with all the world, sin has infected us. And so we demean and destroy each of those relationships. And yet, how does God respond to us? Time and time again. I don't know if it's true for you. I hope it is. It's true for me. I'm met with mercy, mercy, and more mercy. But here's the problem. Although our rebellion against God's created order is inevitable, so it's, it's inevitable from the beginning. You start reading Genesis and you understand from the beginning sin is an infection that they cannot get rid of. There's a flood and then Noah comes out and he sins. Sin is there. It is inevitable. It is a part of his life and it is a part of our lives. But even though our rebellion against God is inevitable, God's grace toward us is not inevitable. We, we, we say all the time we take God's grace for granted. That's only true if God doesn't have to show us grace. And that's something we need to remember. That's something that Genesis shows us. God is not obligated to show us grace and mercy. We are certain that God created the world to be good. We are certain that humanity messed it up. And we are certain that God is righteous to judge it and us. We are certain that we deserve judgment, that we deserve banishment, and that we deserve death because of the gravity of our sin. But how can we be certain that God will continue to respond to us the way that he did to Adam and Noah? Because with Adam, what do we see? He sins in the garden, and what does the Lord do? There's righteous judgment, there's banishment, but there's also what? Grace, provision. We see with Noah... There's, there's, he spares Noah. There's grace and there's provision. But these are just examples. Even with Cain, wretched Cain, we see examples of God's grace and mercy. But those are just examples. This is narrative. It's just descriptive. This is what happened. What guarantees do we have at this point in the story that God is going to continue to be gracious in this way? In fact, by the end of Genesis 8, we have some clues. But do we have any hard guarantees from the Lord that life will not just be a cycle of God giving life, humanity messing it up, and then God flooding the earth and starting over with a new family, and then on and on it goes. We have no guarantees. Genesis 1 through 8 offers us no, no guarantees. We have examples of human sin and divine grace, but there's no assurance. 
How can we be sure that the God who regretted making us really cares about any of us? Well, it's Genesis 9. I want us to zoom in on this covenant this morning. In Genesis 9, we discover just how wide and deep and permanent God's grace is. We learn that God still loves his fallen creation, and he has not abandoned his purposes for it, even though sin survived the flood. In Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah, his descendants, and the whole earth. And God's covenant with Noah creates personal hope for those of us who have made wrecks of our lives. And it provides cosmic hope for every single aspect of our fallen world. This covenant with Noah contains both a binding promise that the world as it is will be sustained, and it provides a beautiful foretaste for the world as it will be. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a look just generally at covenants. What is a covenant? We're introduced to this new world, or new world, new word, and and we're going to see what covenant is, and then specifically look at the covenant with Noah. And then I want us to, to see three implications this has about God's character. Three implications about God's character, all right? So let's start by considering covenants. I, I'm going to encourage you to take some notes this morning. I'm going to specifically ask for some feedback from you, so be ready for that. If you don't have anything to write on, but you have a liturgy guide, guess what? You have something to write on now. Um, so I hope you brought something to write with. First, let's talk about covenants. So this word may be familiar to it, may be unfamiliar, may be confusing, but it's really not that hard to grasp. A, a biblical covenant is a legally binding commitment, usually between two parties, which contains conditions, promises, and signs that accompany them. So um, if this concept of covenant is hard for you, all you have to do is think about marriage. Just think about marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a specific kind of relationship where two parties commit to one another and they have, they have specific stipulations in place. They promise to be faithful. And usually that's demonstrated through a, a ceremony. And, and usually it's demonstrated through a sign. So the wedding ring, for example, is a sign of covenant faithfulness between the couple. It's, it's a relationship, a specific kind of relationship. And in the scriptures, most of the time, it involves a saving relationship between God and people. Now, throughout the Bible, we can easily and at minimum identify five covenants, okay? Some, some would say there's, there's one before the covenant with Noah, a uh, covenant of works. We're not going to debate that this morning. But five that you can clearly see that uses the language of a covenant. The first is the one we have today, the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. The second is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham. The third is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. The fourth is the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. And then the fifth is the, the new covenant, or the covenant that's, that's ultimately made through Jesus. Um, covenants, now this is where I want you to really start taking notes. Covenants contain these aspects. Parties, promises, conditions, and signs. Parties, promises, conditions, and signs. So in the covenant with Noah we find parties, promises, conditions, and signs. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read, once again, uh, Genesis 9, 11 through 17. I'm going to read the covenant, and what I want you to do is fill in the blanks, okay? So whenever you hear a party, so people involved, whether it's God, another person, whoever it is, who are the parties of the covenant? And, and I want you to write those down. Whenever you hear a promise, I want you to write the promise down. And if you hear any conditions, like an if-then clause, I want you to write that down. 
And then whenever you, you hear a sign, I want you to write that down. So I'm going to read the passage, and, and you fill in the blanks. All right, Genesis 9, starting in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, repetitive language. Uh, which should make it a little easier to identify the parts. Okay, so first, and, and feel free, we're going to participate a little bit. Feel free, shout it out, okay? So who are the parties of this covenant? Who's involved? Who's, who are the players? God, I heard God, I heard Noah, all creation, all living creatures. Anybody else? Noah's sons? His descendants, what, what, what about the other one? All future what? Generations, all future generations are included in this covenant. Yeah, so we have Noah, we have God, we have Noah's descendants, we have animals, the whole earth even, okay? What about promise? What's the promise? That God will never again flood the earth, good, yeah. God will never again flood the earth, that's the promise. Did you... What about a condition? Was there a condition where the Lord says, I will never again flood the earth if... Did we see one of those? No, no condition. Okay, we'll get back to that. That's important. And then finally, the sign. What's the sign? The rainbow. Okay, the rainbow. Also important, we'll get back to it. Now, there are two aspects of this covenant that, that are so deeply encouraging that can actually give us real significant hope right now. The first is that God initiates the covenant. And it's so easy to pass over. But Noah doesn't experience this grace from God and then say, you know what, Lord? I would love to just enter into a formal relationship with you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be in covenant with you. Noah doesn't say anything. It's the Lord. The Lord comes down. The Lord initiates this saving covenant relationship with Noah and all of Noah's sons and even down to us, all future generations. It's the Lord himself who's establishing and initiating this covenant. So when God enters into a covenant, a saving relationship with his people, he is the one to initiate it. And is that not really good news? That God is the one who initiates a saving relationship with sinners because I don't know about you I would not pursue that on my own I would not pursue the Lord just on my own and want to have a deeply uh, 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 you know relationship with him I, I wouldn't do it so I'm so thankful that the Lord is the one who's initiating here but secondly another, another thing to take away from this covenant so important easy to forget is that God places no conditions on this covenant as you read it, there are no if-then clauses in the passage at all. 
God's promise to never again destroy the earth with a flood did not depend on anything except God's faithfulness to his own word. God will never again destroy the earth, not on the condition that future generations are faithful enough. God will never again flood the earth because he said he wouldn't do it. And he keeps his word. Here's why this is important. It's not as if all of a sudden, mankind started living in a way that did not demand severe judgment from the Lord. It's not as if things just got better all of a sudden. So God said, oh, I'm so they improved. They learned their lesson, you know, and, and now they're not going to live that way anymore. So now I don't have to flood the earth. Now, the reality is we deserve it. Our sin is severe. Because our sin is directly against the creator, our creator. And if the earth not flooding depended on our obedience, I'd be looking for an ark. <laughs> I'd, I'd be looking for an ark if I were you. But the Lord places no conditions Mankind will never arrive at a point where we don't deserve severe judgment for our severe sin. Yet, we can say with confidence today that God will never flood the earth again. Never again. But that's all because the covenant is unconditional. It depends solely on God's initiative. It depends solely on God's faithfulness. God provides for us and sustains our every breath not because we have, as, you know, as a culture, as, as humans, passed some basic test of righteousness or obedience. God provides for the absolute worst of us who will never turn in faith to him because he is good and he is gracious and he is faithful to keep his word. So, intro to the covenant there. Now, this covenant with Noah connects us to three realities about God. There were some things that, that we may start to doubt about God as we read up to this point, which are now clarified for us. And actually, our relationships with, with one another, with the earth, and with God are clarified here as well. So I want to take these one by one. First, I, I, I want to emphasize to you something that could easily be lost, and it's that God values every human life. God values every human life. Back up with me to verses 5 and 6. In Genesis 9. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay, so... Something here I don't, I don't really understand uh, is, you know, if I could just be honest with you for a second. Um, you have animals here, and the Lord is basically saying, I will hold animals accountable when they kill humans. They, their, their blood will be demanded of them. There will be a reckoning. I don't, I don't really know exactly how that plays out. I know how it played out in the Old Testament law. I don't know today, you know, exactly how it plays out. We see that from time to time, you know. You'll see a wild animal that will, you know, kill kill a human and they'll they'll put that animal down um I, I don't really know the point though is absolutely clear absolutely clear god values every human life now from the beginning that was never in question 
okay? We see from the beginning that God loves and provides for mankind. We see mankind is presented in Genesis as the pinnacle of creation. And it's only after people are created that he declared his creation to be very good. This covenant shows us that nothing has changed, that God has not changed, that his disposition toward his creation has not changed. And that's kind of a big deal. Because if we read the flood narrative openly and honestly, maybe, maybe a little bit narrowly, we might start to doubt God's concern for people. You know, he, he floods the earth, which, which means that every single living thing died, except for the ones he intentionally spared on the ark. Well, it's like, well, great, he spared those, but he killed the rest of them. You know? So... You could read that and be like, well, maybe, maybe the Lord's a little flippant with, with human lives. He just picks some, throws some away, and he's just a little flippant with human life. Well, this passage lets us know that is not true. He still values all life, especially human life. Here's the takeaway. God cares deeply about every single human, not just Christians. Not just, not just righteous people, not just people who go to church. God cares deeply about every single human. Human value is linked to imperfect image bearing, not perfect righteousness or obedience. We are the ones who are prone to attach value to performance. We look down on those who behave in ways that we don't approve of. We're prone to belittle those who think different, differently from us. We neglect those who are weaker than us. But God is not waiting on you to perform or succeed or obey him in order for him to care for you. He's not waiting for that. God cares for all people on the earth simply because they are created in his image and they all have intrinsic value and worth. Every human life is precious to God and every human life should be precious to us because every single person bears God's image. Whenever I would teach TC kids, uh, we, would, we would sometimes talk about, um, you know, fights that would happen on the playground or, you know, kids that would say mean things to you at school and we would, we would pray through that, but we would talk about it and we would ask a question, why is that wrong? They knew it was wrong, Right? That's not right. It's not right to push someone down. It's not right to push someone off a swing. It's not right to call someone names. But I would always ask them, why? Why is it not right? It gets at this question of justice. And so whenever you have that, that thought, whenever you see something in the world and you're like, that's not right. It's not right that they did that to this person. It's not right this is happening to me. It's not right. Ask yourself, why is it not right? Why is it not right for people to treat others with contempt or to harm others why is abuse wrong why because every single person is created in the image of God which means every single person has inerrant value and worth so whenever we belittle or demean or harm or abuse or kill another human we are not just harming another human we are attacking God himself Waging war against another image bearer is waging war against God. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, a couple things. First, we are called 
in light of this truth that God cares and values every, every single human life, we are called to do right by all without exception. We are called to do right by all without exception. We don't just care about justice for those who are like us. We don't just care about justice for, for those who are in our camp or those who are Christians. We care about justice for all. Whenever we see people being oppressed and harmed, we, it does not matter who they are, what they believe in, what they look like, where they're from. They're human and they're valuable. So we're called to do right by all without exception. Okay, but secondly, we are called to do good to all without exception. I, I, love, I love our benevolence ministry here at Trace. I love it. Um, mainly because when, when someone comes and they need help, as elders, we've established, we, we've established a, a way for them to receive help no matter what. You don't have to attend a service. You don't have to, you know, be a Christian. You don't have to do anything other than be in need, and we will help you. We will provide help. There's a, a you know, obviously there's a, a cautious, a safe, a reasonable way that we do that. Um, but I love the fact that we do that, that you come and you are, you're in need. You don't have to, and, and, and I've talked with plenty of people, and they feel like in order to get help from a church, they need to let us know just how much they love God, you know? I'll tell you what, I'm in a, I'm in a tough spot, but I love the Lord. And it's like that, that would somehow compel us to help them more. No. We do good to all without exception because God values every human life and, and so should we. Okay, so God values every human life. But something else we see here. God values not only every human life, God values every aspect of creation. Every aspect of creation. And this is where I think we're a little weak. When we think about salvation, when we think about God's grace, or we think about God's covenants, we only think in terms of humans. Jesus came to save people, okay? And then even when we think about people, we mostly think about our souls. So, you know, Jesus came to, to forgive us. Jesus came to uh, give us rest, you know, for our souls. And so uh, when we die, our spirits, our souls will be in the presence of God forever. And you know, maybe even think of eternity as, you know, just you being an angel or a spirit floating around on clouds. And we forget about the earth. We, to we totally forget about the earth. What's interesting about this covenant is that Noah and God are not the only parties. You guys said it earlier. His sons, his descendants, but also all living creatures. All of the earth, all of creation is included. Now, what does it mean for God to enter into a saving relationship with wolves, you know, and trees. And uh, we've been having a fruit fly problem at our house, but I guess fruit flies, um, you know. Wh what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean for the Lord to covenant with mountains and oceans? Well, let's just think about a covenant relationship. What is a saving relationship? It's the Lord initiating. It's unconditional. It's the Lord pouring out his mercy and grace, not only on humans, but on all of creation. God enters into a saving relationship with all aspects of creation, which means that every single aspect of creation is headed for renewal. It's not just God's people. Creation is coming with us. Creation is being renewed with us. There's restoration. Paul in Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul says, 
that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation needs to be redeemed just as much as we need to be redeemed. Creation needs to be restored just as much as we need to be restored. And and how can that be possible if creation doesn't sin? Well, creation suffers the consequences of our sin. I mean, obviously when we abuse creation now, but creation is corrupted because of Adam's original sin, and there needs to be renewal. And so what we see in this covenant, the fact that the whole earth is included in in God's promise not to destroy it ever again, is that God cares about the earth. And, And by his grace, he will renew the earth. So there is hope for all of creation. Not just because God will never again destroy the earth by a flood, but because God will one day make the earth new. And that's part of our hope as well. One day, we're not just going to be in the presence of God floating on a cloud. We're going to be in the presence of God in a glorified creation where there will be no issues whatsoever. And it will be perfect. And the adventures will be endless. So God cares about the earth. And we should too. Finally, a word about God's grace. God's grace is both permanent and visible. So, you know, this covenant clarifies our relationship with one another. We don't just care about those within the body of Christ. We care about all people because all people have intrinsic worth and value. We also care about the earth because the Lord cares about the earth. But there's another relationship here that is probably the most important, the relationship between God and mankind. Let's look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. And let's, let's think about the sign of the covenant. The Lord says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh when the bow is in the clouds i will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between god and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth the sign the rainbow we're all familiar with it when we see it, it causes us to stop in our tracks we take pictures it's beautiful it's gorgeous we, we absolutely love it you don't see it that often but when you see it it's, it's hard to forget it's it's beautiful i hope you'll never look at a rainbow the same way again though The rainbow is a covenant sign in the same way that the cup and the bread are covenant signs. See, the cup and the bread are signs of the new covenant through Jesus. The rainbow is the sign, the symbol that signifies the covenant relationship that God entered into with Noah and all of his descendants and all future generations and the whole earth. The rainbow is a visible reminder to us that God will never forget his promise to never flood the earth again. But but even, even more basic than that, when you see a rainbow, and and you see the rainbow because you're alive and you're walking on the earth, and you see the rainbow and you know that generations have seen the rainbow before you, you are confident that the Lord keeps his promises. 
The Lord keeps his promises. The rainbow is a visible reminder of God's never-ending mercy, and I need a rainbow so bad right now. I don't know about you. I'd love to see one. I'd love to see one, to have a physical, visible reminder that God is merciful to me. I don't know how many of you are doubting God's faithfulness to you right now. How many of you are doubting God's grace to you right now? Maybe you don't feel like God's showing you very much mercy. Or if this is mercy, my goodness, I would hate to see what judgment looks like. But if you see a rainbow, whether you're a Christian or not, you can confidently say, God cares for me. And God is being merciful to me right now. What does the rainbow teach us about God's grace? I want you to think about it in three ways. Three ways. First, the setting or context. The setting or context of God's grace. Um, when, when you see a rainbow, most of the time, what's, what's the rest of the day like? You know, you see a rainbow usually on a day that's been dark and dreary and cloudy and obviously rainy. And then, and then what, what happens? The sun shines through, and, and, and you see the rainbow. But the context, the setting of, of a rainbow is, is darkness, dreariness, rainy, rainy days. The context of God's grace is sin and darkness and neediness and weakness. Sin and darkness provide the backdrop for God's grace. So if you feel that you are in a very dark place right now, if you feel like you are in a very hopeless place right now, you are in the right place to receive God's grace. It's in that setting that God's grace enters. So the setting for God's grace. But secondly, God's grace has a specific shape. And I want you to think about the shape of the rainbow for a second. Someone show me the shape of the rainbow real quick. Just do, do a little finger draw. Woo, thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay, good. So when you think of, of a rainbow, the name rainbow, okay, why do we call it a rainbow? first word rain common sense right you see a rainbow there's rain okay what about the second word what bow bow yeah so the bow the shape of the bow now this i don't know what your what your translation says but the esv does a good job it really specifies in verse 13 the lord says i have set my not rainbow i have set my bow in the clouds shaped like a bow where you know where you shoot arrows um the language of verse 13 gives us the image of a warrior who has laid down his weapons because the war is over i've set my bow i've set my bow in the clouds this is a symbol this is a sign of God's peace reigning on the earth never again will he flood and destroy the whole earth it's a sign that God is at peace. A covenant relationship with God means the end of judgment and wrath against you. And it means a new relationship of peace with God. Of course, with the covenant with Noah, it's, it's very general. There's general peace with God that he will never again destroy the earth. But the nature of God's relationship with mankind is peace. Now, how can God live at peace with people who rebel against him and sin against him? 
Well, that, that gets us to, to the third aspect of God's grace here, and it's the secret of God's grace. You have the setting, you have the shape, and now the secret. And I stole this from Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon once observed the, the orientation or the direction of the rainbow. And, and he just kind of observed, and he said, have you ever noticed that the, the bow is pointed up? The bow is pointed up. It's not pointed down. And then he just made the observation, what if it was inverted? What if it was flipped and, and the bow was pointing down toward the earth? Would that not be kind of startling? You know, when you, have, you consider the archer and his bow pointing, pointed down at the earth. And he, so he makes this observation and then, and then he asks, you know, how, how can it? How can it be that God the warrior puts up his bow and no longer wages war against rebels who sin against him on a daily basis? And Spurgeon said, God can put his bow up because it is pointed up. God can put his bow up because it is pointed up. In other words, God can make peace with Noah and the whole earth because he knows that one day he will be the one that will bear the very judgment that Noah and we deserve. The bow is pointed up because it will be the Lord himself that will receive wrath and judgment against sin. As Jesus goes to the cross and dies, it will be the flood of God's wrath that will overcome him. And this is the only basis of any kind of covenant relationship with God. The bow would be turned toward heaven as the Son of God would bear the sins of man. I love how this one author puts it, and we'll close with this. He said, The bow is a weapon of war, an emblem of wrath. God will now set it in the heavens as a token of grace. The Lord who makes his bow of wrath into a seven-colored arch of beauty to ornament the heavens is the one who will finally command the nations to beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. For the prince of peace takes pleasure in mercy, and the righteous judge delights in grace. No matter where you are this morning, whether you're a believer or non-believer, if you are alive today, you are receiving God's mercy. And you can potentially receive this saving grace from the Lord. God saves sinners by bearing the judgment that sinners deserve. And if you doubt that, or if you ever doubt that God is not good to you, then just wait for a, a cloudy, rainy day, look into the sky, see the rainbow, and marvel at his mercy. Let me pray for us.